it's almost like that um, Japanese Aikido movement. You use their power to give you the impact you're looking for, uh, and that's the way we, we view them. Welcome to episode number 16 of the Toxic Fox Show. It's a podcast for business owners who give a damn. I am Diana Barnett, the host, and my guest today is James Meldrum, one of the founders of Whole Kids. The company is based in Melbourne, Australia, and was the first Australian brand to offer organic snacks for kids, thus creating healthy options for lunchboxes. It all began in 2005. Instead of putting their savings towards purchasing their first home, Monica and James Meldrum started their business, changing the snack food landscape for Australian families. They were one of the first Australian businesses to become a B Corp, and since then they have undergone a rigorous on-site B Corp audit and are in their second term of accreditation. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with other business owners who also give a damn. James and Monica live and breathe their passion. I can't wait to share you today's interview with James. So let's get right into it. The business uh, came about through, uh, well, both Monica and I uh, both um, getting a bit frustrated and, um, you know, I guess looking at what we were going to do with our life or what our life's purpose is. And we were both living in Sydney at the time. We were both working in corporate roles and we just felt that uh, we weren't getting a lot of um, satisfaction and enjoyment from the roles. I'd been in corporate for about um, over about 15 years in various marketing and business strategy roles and I just felt um, some of the conversations that were held internally within the business weren't always consistent with what the business was trying to stand for, what the values of the business were. So I felt this growing disconnect between what a business says it is all about and then what was actually happening within the business. So I'd worked for a couple of businesses and I felt that that was coming through quite strongly across all of those. And I thought, well, um, I'm not sure I actually want to keep working in a business that says one thing and then does something different internally to their, to their team. And so um, I started to look around and think about, well, maybe I should work for myself or set up a business. And it goes back to the days when I studied in America and I was on an MBA exchange program, and this is going back, um, Diane, I'm about to reveal my age, but it was <laughs> 20, 20, oh, over 24 years ago I did my MBA. Um, but at that stage, um, when I went to America, uh, it was just this emergence of companies like Ben & Jerry's, I think Patagonia had been around for maybe a decade or so, and Stonyfield Yogurt, companies like this that were just starting to incorporate um, values into their business operations and looking at, you know, beyond the bottom line. So what is this purpose? What does this business stand for? What is, what is its purpose? Um, and what sort of impact will it make beyond just making some money for the founders and shareholders? And uh, it really did plant a seed in my head. And I think when I came back and then started working in my career and working in um, corporate roles, I think that seed just kind of started to germinate and grow a bit further. And this is where I felt this disconnect with within sort of corporate organisational culture about, you know, values and living values and what is the purpose of business. And so I started to look for companies that were living those values and I couldn't find many that were similar to companies like Ben & Jerry's in Australia. So um, uh, it sort of just got me started thinking, well, how could you create this sort of business? 
But at the same time, Monica was um, frustrated in her uh, sort of professional work and felt she wanted to do something on her own. She started looking at uh, health and nutrition opportunities and the kind of the two just kind of melded together and sort of overlaying this at the same time. We we are the youngest of our respective families, and I think we've got over you know sort of 20 nieces and nephews. And we heard a lot of conversations from our older brothers and sisters around you know how hard it was to find healthy food for kids to take to school. Uh, you know the whole issue around you know a lot of junk food around, and you know um, companies claiming food is healthy and it's not. Um, and, and it just kind of it all gelled together over a short period of time. We thought, well, why can't we, you know, why can't we make healthy kids' food? Um, and we didn't have kids at the time, but we thought by the time we start to have a family, we don't want to have those same conversations that our brothers and sisters were having and, and also run a business that brings in this, this kind of seed, this germinating seed in my mind about how you can run a business responsibly. And it all gelled together and we thought, well, you know, let's make organic kids' food, make it as healthy as we can, and build a business that, you know, is transparent. Uh, it's 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 values driven. It has a purpose beyond making money. Um, you know, we'd been working in corporate for a decade or so, um, and felt that you know there was life beyond money, and just and that's how it came about. Um, that's how the idea of Whole Kids came about. We researched the market for about three years prior to launching. Whole Kids in 2015. So we spent uh, some time in America, looked at some trade shows, looked at what was happening in the supermarkets and health food stores, organic stores, had a look at what was happening over in Europe, then came back and saw and sort of reviewed the Australian market and felt that um, yes, there was a there was a need for definitely a consumer need for healthier products for kids, um, but also just the structure of our retail market was that at some point we felt that the supermarkets, given they control 80% of a grocery spend dollar here in Australia, that they would they would really be the drivers of supply and demand eventually. So what we're seeing overseas would happen eventually at some point here. So we we looked at products um, from the outset that we thought could be the healthiest version we could make of what's on the shelf at the supermarkets at the time. So looked at the junk food snack foods and thought, how can we make a healthier version of that in the same sort of packaging um, at a you know a reasonably good price that we could afford um, to make uh, and to sell and, um, and and sort of be in a position where you know uh, over time the supermarkets would um, you know hopefully look at us and say, okay, well um, uh, you know it's time that we need to expand the organic range and Whole Kids is the brand that that we need. Um, it's not to say that we always favour the supermarkets. In fact, for about eight years of the business, we we kept saying no to them. We don't want to, we don't want to deal with you because we had in this mindset that um, they were kind of the the bad guys of retail. That they were they would mistreat suppliers. They would uh, you know their their interests were not aligned with sort of the interests of a company like ours. And so we you know they wanted our products for quite a long time. We just said no, no, no. Um, uh, but it was only until really the last two years, two to three years, that we felt that um, for us to make an impact beyond organic and health food stores and provide accessibility for mums and dads beyond those smaller retailers, we 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 really needed the power of the supermarkets to to almost like um, give us some power as well. So it's almost like that 
um, Japanese Aikido movement. You use their power to give you the impact you're looking for, uh, and that's the way we, we view them. Uh, we know, yes, they're all about money, and the conversations we have with them is often about margins and and things like that. Um, but as long as you understand what their frame of reference is and and you have conversations that our brand is much more than just margin, then you know you you can you can you can find sort of cracks in the wall, and and you can actually start having more meaningful conversations with buyers. Right. So you went down this track, but my understanding is that you had a whole heap of money saved up. We did. And to buy a I house. wouldn't say a whole lot of money. <laughs> okay. Well, you had a good, you could have had a good sum, whatever it was. And instead of doing that, you put it into the business. Yes. So what gave you the confidence that you were putting your life savings into the business? What we, well, what we did is we, we had saved about, um, about $100,000. So um, it might seem like a lot of money, but I don't, don't think it is in the scheme of things now. I think that would barely scratch a deposit on a house now, I think. Um, but in those days, other. it was substantial. Yeah. In those days, it was. And, um, you know, it was uh, a big decision for us. And, you know, over the three years in looking at the market, we, you know, we each wavered sort of, you know, do we do we do this? Do we don't do this? And, you know, should we just stay in our jobs? And so we kind of, you know, oscillated for about three years on whether we should really jump in boots and all and the big de- big decision sort of marker for us was that that year in 2005 they announced the first ever organic expo to be held in Australia and given what we'd seen overseas with other organic expos we thought okay well this will either prove or disprove that there really is market demand for you know um wider organic products and, and our products in, in particular. So we thought, okay, well, we'll book a stand and we'll go. Um, and it was held in Sydney in July 2005. And it was kind of the, the line in the sand. We thought, okay, now we've got to actually get some products ready. Um, and we went to the expo and we didn't have any finished products. We really just had samples made up and also just mock-ups of what the packaging might look like. Um, but what we did is we we learned from what had happened overseas and we thought, okay, well, we actually want to talk about us um, more so than the product benefits. Um, we actually want to talk about what we stand for. So we actually took a different approach to a lot of other exhibitors that were there at the time. And what we did is we, we had a completely open stand. Um, we had very little mock-ups to show. We were just all about our message, our purpose, our values, and we wanted to bring people into the stand and talk to mums, have kids try the products and see if they like them, and also just see if mums actually understand what we're all about. And that was that was the big turning point for us because the conversations we were having with parents, the response we got from kids about the samples that we had made up was overwhelming. Um, and we had orders on the spot from um, retailers in Sydney, but also buyers from overseas wanted to stock the product straight away. Um, and one customer, one one person visiting our stand, actually thought she'd she'd bought our products before. Like she thought they were already available. <laughs> she said, she said oh, "I'm sure I bought your products in somewhere in northern Sydney." I said, "Okay, well, <laughs> tell us the store because we'd love to know." Um, and that kind of convinced us. So that three days of that trade show. By the time, you know, Sunday night came and we were packing up the stand, we sort of looked at each other and Monica and I, we said, right, 
I think we've got to do it because um, you know the conversations from from other parents was that you know thank God you guys are doing something about it and you know when can I buy your products and we thought right you know it's it's almost like we can't let these parents down so the following Monday we flew back to Melbourne um, and pretty much handed in our resignations that week to both our jobs and you know it was a huge um, leap of faith um, but we felt that um, the the sentiment that we had from all those people visiting our stand and and the, the, the deep conversations about the issues that we want to address and and the, the just the underlying need thought well that gave us the confidence to do it it's not to say that it was easy um, once we'd actually committed but it certainly uh, motivated us a lot um, to, to get it happening quickly and to and to get products on shelves quickly as well yeah. so there are a lot of topics here that I want to cover today so sure. I'll go through but um, one of the ones that um, I wanted to ask you is why certified organic and why B Corp certification for you Okay, so first of all, with certified organic, that was one of the um, uh, sort of mandatories that we wanted right at the start. Um, both Monica and I don't come from a food background, so when we were looking at, should we, you know, is this an opportunity for us, and do we have, um, you know, the passion for it? You know, that three years we spent, uh, we spent researching the market. A lot of that was focused on researching the, the benefits of organic food, why have it, um, why eat it, why produce it, is it benefit of the environment, how is it different to conventional uh, produced food. Um, and that three years really did convert us that um, you know, we all should be eating organic food, uh, especially for kids and, and babies. And so that, always, that was our kind of um, our self-education process. So that right from the start, we wanted to be certified organic. Being certified organic, also means that we remove a lot of the uh, almost all the artificial additives that were that were that were a bit of a, a problem um, that mums and dads were seeing in conventional products. So they wanted additives out of their food. It also validated a lot of the research that we're finding from the health community about the effects of additives on kids' behaviour um, and their health. So we thought, right, that's that's almost that's a, like a mandatory for us. It's got to be certified organic, and we've stayed that way ever since. B Corp came in a little bit later, so um, we. It's interesting because we we're having conversations with you know people like suppliers and retailers about you know we're 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 all about values and we're all about purpose and things like that. And ten years ago, eleven years ago, people would kind of scratch their head and go, I don't, "I'm not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> Isn't business just to make money?" Um, and so for us, it was it was hard to have a framework to have a conversation about that. Uh, with with people outside the business, and then when B Corp came along, um, it allowed us a framework to say, well, here is uh, you know a methodology, an assessment, you know a framework to assess whether a business is living its values, you know is making the impact that it is saying it is making, um, and it's a third party validated assessment, so it's not just us saying you know, this is what we're all about and you've just got to believe us. Um, there's also a lot of greenwashing out there as well, so we wanted to differentiate between those companies that they were saying they were doing good but actually weren't. Um, and, and our view now is that um, 
certified organic is for um, for our customers, you know, the, va- the validation and the proof that our products are exactly what they say they are, and they are the best products for you. The B Corp certification is the validation uh, and proof. The business as a whole is what we say we are, and those two things for us are kind of like the uh, the uh, you know the um, the, the external um, uh, sort of labels or what you what I call them that cust- the trust marks that customers can say yes you're certified organic you're a B Corp you're good for me but you're also good for good for society as well. Right, so you're one of the first B Corps in Australia, and you went through that. And you've have you been gone through the second evaluation after two we years? We have. Yep. Yes. How we was did that? that last year. It was great. We had uh, we were one of the businesses uh, selected for an on-site audit. So I think about I think about ten percent. I think around the world are selected each year for an on-site audit. So the US team came out here and audited um, a handful of businesses in Australia, about five or six, and we were one of them. So they were in our office for a whole day and they were they were going through everything that we claimed we were doing. So they went through things like policies, procedures, they interviewed our staff um, privately and confidentially to say that, you know, they're assessing Monica and I on our leadership, on what we say we were doing externally and internally. It was a great process to go through and, and for us, it gave us even more trust that the B Corp um, certification is the right one for us. Um, you know, their the level of uh, scrutiny, um, the level of assessment of what we what we say we do and how they how they measure us um, is is so thorough that uh, I'm very I'm, I'm really pleased with them and also really confident that um, the B Corp mark will be the accepted mark across the world for I guess responsible businesses. Right. Yeah. Um, I just want to move into partners and there's all sorts of different partnerships. Um, but yours, you and Monica having being partners in personal life as well as in business, how do you manage that? <laughs> yeah, we get asked this question a lot um, and some people wonder how it's lasted so long being 10 years. <laughs> um, but it's, I think, you know, a couple of things are behind that. One is that, um, you know, we're both coming from the same passion and mindset. You know, we both want to make a difference with the business. We both, you know, money is not the priority in our lives. And, you know, we're certainly bringing up our kids around that, that there's more things to life than just making as much money as you can. You know, it's all about making a contribution to others and to to the community. So it's something that we both are passionate about anyway. So I think we're both very much on the same path there. Secondly, we both bring different skill sets to the business. So it's not like we're both operating in the same areas of the business and treading on our toes and things like that. So Monica's very strong on sales, operations and production, and my focus is marketing, brand, and, you know, a bit of finance, but also, you know, the whole purpose and, and community impact side of things. So, um, and I think they balance each other really well so that it's it's almost like um, she looks after one half of the business, I look after the other, and we're not always 
um, you know, it may be days that we don't even see each other in the business because we're operating on different things. And I think that really helps. I think if we were both strong in one area, I think it would, we'd probably find it a bit difficult to work together. Um, but thirdly, we're also really conscious um, and learned from our past experience that we, you know, we try to avoid bringing work home as much as possible. So at the start, you know, it was Monica and I, and we didn't have um, the the kids at that stage. So we we'd be working very long hours. We come home and do even more work. Now we're just trying to create a, a little bit more separation there, so the kids, you know, are not seeing this whole kids being all encompassing. That you know, there is more to life than than this business, and 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 you know, exposing kids that to our kids that um, you know we don't just come home and work and work and work and you know, we actually create a clear uh, separation there as well. Um, and fourthly, we've, we've just got an amazing team here that uh, we all work together and it doesn't, you know, it almost feels family-like. So we're very conscious that when we bring people in, you know, it's almost like they are joining a family. Um, and uh, I think that that creates the kind of culture where it's much easier if you're husband and wife um, to work together. So talking about that, how do you create a culture of um, people working together? I mean, staffing is an issue that many businesses face, getting the right skills and getting the commitment and having the same values. How do you do that? Yeah, and it's one thing that we're, fo- we're focusing uh, more and more on is, is uh, right from the outset, uh, you know, looking at people's values, looking at people's um, personal view on the world. Previously, we, when we were growing the business, often we'd just grab someone because we needed a lead. Like we needed someone, a salesperson, or we needed someone out in the warehouse, and we'd just grab whoever we can. Um, but we found that that always that that always wasn't creating a cohesive culture, especially when you're trying to build a values-based culture. You need people to bring not only their skills but their self to work, um, and almost bring that vulnerability that they will, they will be themselves and they won't be someone else. Um, I think we've all probably worked in places where people bring a different self to work um, and then you see them outside of work and they're someone else and you think, oh, you know, um, <laughs> why are you this person and you're quite different at work? And, you know, I think the culture itself drives that but also people sometimes feel that they um, they feel a bit uncomfortable about just bringing their total self to work. They've got to... You know, focus on the job, come to work, and then and then leave. And that's not the way we wanted to work. In fact, that was a lot of the frustration that we felt in our roles prior to Hockey. So we didn't want that kind of culture to start with. So we spent a lot of time in interviews. We we asked people about you know the, their life, about what they enjoyed in other roles, what you know about the kind of cultures that they, organisational cultures that they had worked in, you know what they do in their personal life, you know, what are their what are their views on certain issues and things like that and what's their understanding of these issues and um, so we do a lot of um, questioning and, and um, conversations that are not even part of the job that we're advertising uh, as an example. So, you know, it's almost like there's that test of, um, you know, if we were going to spend a couple of hours on the plane sitting next to them, um, you know, are you the kind of person that I'd, I'd want to have a really deep conversation about, 
you know, values, about, you know, kids' health, about the environment, um, and do you, do you get it? Like, do you actually get all that? And because it's what we do here, like every Friday now we have, um, uh, we have uh, what we call sort of information or lunchtime sessions and we might show a movie about uh, sugar or the problems of sugar or food additives or um, global warming or something like that. And, you know, some, some, some people get all that and they enjoy it. Our team, all of us go to it, so we enjoy it. So it just creates the culture that you can... You know, have conversations in the business that's not just work. Um, and I think if you can find those people who are happy to do that, it creates its own culture that builds and builds on it. And with a small team, you've got to be really careful about who you bring into the business because um, you know it, it's a bit like um, uh, you know your body. If you eat the wrong food, you can actually create this multiplier effect throughout your whole body, and you can get quite sick. <laughs> or you can have these adverse effects that you didn't realise. And it's the same with bringing people into the business. Um, you know, they might seem like the right fit at the time, or they might bring the right skills that you want. But over time, you know, it starts to impact different parts of the business if they really are the wrong fit. So you know, now we will actually not recruit for a role if we don't find the right values and cultural fit first. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you do that purely through the interview process or do you have other sort of systems that you have in place as well for that? Well, it is a lot of it is through the interview process. Um, we do a lot of uh, referral checking um, and it's not just the traditional tick box like did they, did they undertake this job. We actually find out uh, as much as we can about um, how they, you know, interacted with their fellow uh, employees, um, you know, what sort of, you know, what's their sort of personal values and assessment of their personal values from other people, and see if that correlated with what our perceptions were. Um, and so we do a lot of that. We're now starting to build a bit more process and systems around that. So it's something we really want to focus on. Um, and um, sometimes, you know, in the early days, it was often just um, Monica and I's, you know, a sort of gut feel a little bit. Um, and but now we know, you know, with a larger team, and we want to have more uh, systemic approach to it, a more systems-based approach to it, so that you know the people who work with us now, they're knowing that when we bring someone in, you know, we, they've gone through a screening process and they're the right person for the job and and for the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're looking at that staff and they're part of your team and your partnership, but so are your suppliers. How do you identify them and manage them? Because one of the things. I see as a problem for you or challenge, not a problem, yep. is supply and demand of product because of weather, drought. Yeah, yeah, that is a problem with some ingredients. So there is a, you know, for some ingredients like apples and pears, you know, there's obviously a seasonality to that. Um, and there's growing demand here um, for those products, either whether they're fresh or whether they're used as ingredients in products, means that you know there's a, we've got to try and source them as well. Um, but we've 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 built up very strong relationships with um, our growers, so that and we have done over the last ten years or so, so that you know we've we go and visit them, we go and you know um, give them as much information as we can about kind of our forward planning on how much we might need. Um, but quite often. Um, you know, things will just come out of the blue, like there might be a frost or there might be something like that, and, you know, the crop yield is not as high as 
to grow a nice thought or, or they've got too much. Um, so what we do is we, we always keep in contact with our suppliers and when things like that come up, you know, if they've got excess, for instance, um, apples, uh, we might help them out and actually buy that excess and then juice it and store it. Or, um, you know, if they've got a uh, lower yield, because we have a, a closer relationship with them, um, we find that they will tend to give us a higher priority than, say, someone else that they've only dealt with, like, for a year or someone who's just coming in and thinking, oh, I just need this to make this certain product. So we find that those long-standing relationships really benefit us when supply and demand become um, a bit erratic uh, and unpredictable. Um, but having said that, um, there, you know, a lot of our products are contract manufactured and in their finished in their finished state. So we don't deal with the ingredients themselves in terms of purchasing them. Um, so we're reliant on those people buying the ingredients, but. Um, uh, we, we carefully select our contract manufacturers as well. So uh, we tend to favour companies that can produce, um, has the cap have the capacity to scale up if they need to, but also companies that um, are much more values aligned. So they might be family businesses, they might be small enterprises, um, rather than you know like a, a major corporation or a division of a major corporation. Um, particularly with things like contract manufacturing, it's really um, a real key to success here is to um, make sure that your products are produced when you want them um, on time. Um, and if we're, say, a small customer of a very large contract manufacturer, and we've had this experience in the past, um, your production schedule can be bounced around at the whims of much larger clients that they have. So you cannot always be guaranteed that your product will be manufactured when you want it to be, um, and for us, that's that's you know the, the worst thing that could happen because we we don't want to let our retailers down that our products are unavailable. So we tend to uh, avoid the really large scale manufacturers, and plus I don't you know we want to work with partners that if we're doing product development, we're doing innovation, that they're they can they can be on board with us around and work together on that. And sometimes with larger contract manufacturers, they're much more interested in just pushing volume through the factory um, rather than working on perhaps innovation or um, you know different forms of packaging, for example, and things like that. So how do you get them to to be able to be part of the B Corp certification? How do you how do you ensure that because it it relies on a lot of those people being in the same value system or do you, does that not matter? Um, well, what we do is, um, in fact, I don't think, well, none of our contract manufacturers or suppliers are B Corps. So, however, they have, um, the, a lot of them do have the values of being a B Corp. And in fact, you know, we almost, <laughs> we wanna, at some point we're going to have a conversation with a few of them because I reckon a few of them could be B Corps right now. Um, and... Uh, but a lot of it is, you know, pick on Monaco on the production side, you know, going out and personally visiting the founders or the owners, um, you know, and developing that relationship rather than just a call to, say, their account manager or their sales manager and setting off the relationship that way. Um, we have had one experience where we dealt with a contract manufacturer that started to get much more focused in just doing volume um, and perhaps wasn't having the same focus and attention that we had on product quality, 
uh, you know, production timing, scheduling and things like that, and even product innovation. And they had been with us for quite a few years. In fact, I think they'd been with us for about eight years. But we just found that a change in their, you know, ownership and also management structure had shifted the whole business focus as well so that we weren't getting the relation, you know, the, the we weren't having the relationship that we had previously and we found that that then influenced all sorts of things in terms of the product, in terms of production. And we ended up ending that relationship because we felt that it was no longer beneficial to us um, and also beneficial to our customers. So that feeds also then is managing growth because mm. you you've gone through researching and reading all the stuff you've got about your turnovers around the $6 million or plus. Yes. So yeah. how did you manage the relationship with growth happening? What's the biggest challenges you've found with growth? And what's the lot? I mean, I don't know if you can quantify this, but when did you have the largest jump of growth? Um, does that make sense? We, yeah, yeah, it does make sense, absolutely. Um, we, in the early years, we were um, doubling growth almost every year. Um, but having said that, it's coming off a very low base. Um, we did reach a point around about the fourth and fifth year where we found that um, growth started to taper off and almost flatline. That's not to say that you know we're always focused on growth. I mean, sometimes you know for us, growth is is almost a bit by default. So you go into the supermarkets, for example, and suddenly they give you six, eight hundred stores, so you get that growth straight away. Um, but that's not to say that getting that growth was part of the plan to start with. It was more about have we got the right products for the supermarket? Do they want these? You know, is the pricing right? Um, you know, do we actually want to have that relationship? So they're more of the conversations we have and we, we approach that with a lot of opportunities. We don't just say we're going to grow by X percent this year. Um, we look at where the opportunities are and if it, if it provides growth opportunities, great. But also there have been years where we haven't had no growth. Um, but around about that fourth or fifth year, what we found was that the pressures of the of growing the business and doubling every year started to really be felt in... The operational side of the business and we were running our own warehouse at the time so we had all our own pallet racking storage we were doing our own logistics and dispatch and we found that um, our time on the business particularly Monica and my time really did shift so we were spending much more time in the kind of the back office functions of the business we were out in the warehouse more often um, and we started to see the investment of the business so where we were spending our money start to shift away from um, things like product development, um, uh, you know, things like that, and sales, and shifting into things like uh, expanding the warehouse. And we thought, is this really what we're about? Um, you know, we're not a logistics business, we're not a warehousing business, so why, why is our focus? Why are we spending more time in that? And we knew that if we kept... Uh, sort of growing at this rate or, you know, even if we grow, grow, grow each year a little bit, um, the demands of the operational side of the business, the warehousing and so on, would just increase you know, commensurately. So we thought, is there a better way for us to do it and to focus on the things that are more meaningful to us and more meaningful to our customers? So how can we make better products, spend more time on making healthier, better products, which is what we're about, and making more impact in the community? 
And so what we did is in um, when the lease was up on the warehouse, we actually outsourced that whole part of the business. Um, so we outsourced the warehouse, the logistics, the delivery, the picking and packing, um, and now we just have a small office in Port Melbourne with the team. So, and we feel there are better people who can do that um, rather than us uh, investing in that side of the business, investing in more people, investing in more plant and equipment and, and facilities. Uh, we would much rather invest our time and money in making better products, um, you know, getting more distribution so we can get it into stores which are closer to customers, our mums and dads, so they can buy it, buy our products and you know, more convenience and things like that. Um, but around about that time when we were making that decision, you know, we really did flatline the business. It really was, you know, almost like no growth for a couple of years. Um, and then after we got through that period of outsourcing, we then started to focus back, focus back on product development. So we launched, uh, I think that following year, about six or eight products in the market, and that spurred on more growth in the business. So that's kind of how we we uh, you know generate that growth. It's through product development and increase in distribution, and often the two, you know, they go hand in hand. You are listening to James Meldrum, one of the founders of Whole Kids, a manufacturer of healthy organic snack foods for kids. This episode is brought to you by Cultivate Biz, facilitators of mastermind groups for conscious business owners that also give a damn. Uh, a journalist from the Sydney Morning Herald had interviewed us about uh, our business, what we what we stood for, uh, and also um, their, the journalist's focus was very much on food issues, and and they wanted to talk about um, sulfites in food, or you know sort of um, food risks, and we mentioned that um, because we are organic, uh, we don't add any artificial sulfites or preservatives to our sultanas, and um, that was put into the article, um, and what we did is we made it. Um, a statement that unlike conventional products that do have sulfites as preservatives, um, this may cause allergic reactions in kids, for instance, kids with respiratory issues and asthmatics. And I used to have asthma as a kid and I know that when I used to eat sultanas as a kid, my breath would start to get a bit short and, um, and you know, I had no idea what, what was happening there, but now I know it was because of the sulfite preservatives. Um, However, so the article was published and uh, that same morning we got a call from a very large company that also made dried fruit products, um, uh, particularly Sultanas, uh, was also the leading, is the leading brand in the market at the time and the CEO called us up and said we want you to uh, retract that statement that um, you know, our, our products don't have uh, have, I mean, their products have sulfites, and they're you know not good, not necessarily good for kids with their respiratory issues. Um, so we were still renting our little house in Richmond, and it was literally Monica and I just sitting around a, a little desk with a phone and a fax and um, two chairs. That was the state of our business at, the, at that point. And so the CEO um, made a lot of statements about wanting to kind of get us out of the industry, and you know, words to that effect, and we just thought, right, what do we do? And so when we got off the phone call, we, we looked at each other and thought, right, like we're not going to take this. We're, you know, we've obviously hit a raw nerve in the industry and, and something that uh, kind of corroborates 
what we're all about, that sulfites are not good for kids and, you know, they they shouldn't be in products necessarily and and so we thought, no, let's let's um let's defend ourselves. So we found that we did two things. One, we went onto that company's website and we dug down deep into their website and product information and found that they actually do use sulfites in their products. Um so first of all they they were trying to sort of I guess hide that information in a sense. Um and secondly we rang up the journalist again and the journalist's reaction was um, that he said that every time he does a, a article on the food industry, he gets all these phone calls from the big businesses and the big brands, wanting retractions, wanting amendments, revisions, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and he said he just uh, he just gets really frustrated that he can't get you know genuine store genuine. Uh, stories out there about companies that are doing the right thing and also products that are that are that are good for you. So he then wrote a second article, uh, which basically um, validated our viewpoint and also did further research on around sulfites and this brand in particular. And uh, it actually turned out that the second article was from a public perception point of view, much worse than the first article for them. So they probably should have said nothing. Um, uh, so, But the other one you're talking about, which was the little ass, um, we got a phone call one day about uh, 18 months ago from South Australia Little Ass, the CEO there, and um, Sue Bowman, and she asked us whether we were interested in sponsoring Little Ass. Um, and we said, we'd love to. We're, you know, We've always been advocating that um, you know, there should be more healthier food sponsorship or healthier partners involved in um, activities like Little Ass. And she mentioned that um, she had been spent quite a bit of time reviewing all their partnerships and reviewing whether they were the right fit, um, you know, canvassing opinions from their members and participants about you know, whether it was appropriate to have um, a fast food, junk food company being a principal sponsor and had been for a few years and felt that it was time for a change um, and felt that it would, the message needed more message alignment around what the activities were about and also what their partnership activ- uh, communication was about. So they approached us and asked us if we'd be a sponsor and replace the existing food sponsor, the junk food sponsor. We said we'd love to. So uh, we've been a partner with them for the last 12 months. Um, she is also a big advocate of healthier partnerships on community organisations like this. So she's having a conversation at the national level around uh, all little athletics groups, state-based groups, um, having a look at their partnerships and seeing if they're the right ones for them. So I think it's starting off a, a good conversation internally within little athletes about who they should partner with. That's fantastic. So that yeah. moves us on to another project that you're working on, and that's Unjunket. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Sure, Unjunket. Well, yeah, this is as a, um, it's a, for us it's an umbrella um, uh, approach to things that, um, we believe are kind of junking up kids' childhood. And it's something that we've noticed even with um, our own kids growing up, in particular Chloe, is that, um, you know, it's, it's a very different childhood to when I grew up that Chloe is experiencing now. And I know we can't always go back to the childhood that we, that we had. However, you know, what we're seeing with her childhood is that, um, you know, she's being exposed to a lot more social media, she's been so, a lot more technology, um, there's a lot, lot more junk food marketing around 
in the environment now and, and where she goes to. Um, and we feel, we feel that, you know, that, that whole experience of childhood is being, it's almost being shortened in a sense. Like it's, it's, it's this need or this almost this um, assumption that kids need to grow up really fast and become adults. And even, you know, the media that you see out there and magazines and things like that are talking almost adult messages to kids and teenagers and, and even, you know, tweens. And for us, you know, it's a conversation that we're having with our friends or parents as well and we feel that, you know, where did childhood go? Um, and, you know, we're finding also the kids are not playing outside enough, they're not, you know, going into nature, they're not reconnecting nature, they're not understanding what nature is all about. And for us, um, you know, if you don't understand something, if you don't connect with something, then you won't care about it. And I think for us, you know, unjunk part of that is unjunked. So part of that is reconnecting kids with nature and um, finding ways to provide those opportunities where kids can get out and enjoy nature. And it can still be fun. It doesn't have to be boring. And it can still be fun. But I think for us, if you understand something and you have knowledge about it, then you then you tend to care about it more. And I think if kids grow up without an understanding of nature and experiencing nature, you know, they tend to grow up as that. Or oh, my belief is they tend to grow into adults where they have perhaps less care. About the environment, and I think that is true across all sorts of things. So it could be, you know, food, health, nutrition. You know, if you don't care about, or if you don't understand and have knowledge about the food you eat and the drinks you eat and what it can do to your body, you know, you tend not to care so much about what you eat. And I think a lot of the messages around the food industry is that yes, you know, it's okay to have a coke once in a while or whatever, but the advertising and the promotion of junk food doesn't say that at all. It, it wants you to have more and more and it normalises the consumption of that and it also associates those foods with healthy activities. For instance, we just talked about little athletics um, and how they were reviewing whether they, the messages were the right messages. And I think when you see uh, junk food sponsorship of you know, national sports like the AFL and rugby, um, you know, for kids and families, it, it normalises that, you know, sport and junk food go together when they really shouldn't. Um, and also through things like the pervasiveness of social media, we're finding that um, particularly food marketing and, um, uh, and things like that, it's a very unregulated um, media landscape. So a lot of the, um, what you could call rules in inverted commas, around what advertisers can do. It's a lot of it is self co uh, industry codes, they're voluntary codes. Um, you know, there's not enough, in our view, regulation around when and how food should be marketed or even promoted at all to children and in what circumstances and in what sort of environments. And for us, that's the first thing we want to look at in Junket is the whole issue of food marketing to kids. And, you know, one of the... Um, uh, courses of action that we want is that we want the government to regulate that there would be no junk food marketing on TV before 9pm each day. So at least that gets rid of you know, a good chunk of advertising of what we believe are the wrong foods in during times where kids are highly likely to be watching programs. So there's, there is industry, there is um, government regulation about um, uh, 
restricting junk food advertising to C-registered programs and some other programs. But as you know, kids watch all sorts of programs. Um, you know, they watch sports, they watch you know entertainment shows, they watch singing shows and so on. And these are not classified as C. So junk food companies can advertise whatever they like. And we think, you know, there's a movement around the world to address the rise in obesity and, and junk food marketing, in our view, is intricate, you know, intricately linked within that rise. So I think if we can address the food messages that kids receive and families receive uh, and balance that again with healthier messages, I think we can see, you know, I talk about that knowledge gap and that kind of, you know, if you understand something better, you will tend to you know, care more about it. And I think if we can take away those messages, replace them with healthier messages, and knowledge, then people will care more about what they they feed their kids and what they um, you know what kids will grow up and have and have healthier food habits. So, how are you going to do this? It's a big job. It is a big job, and there are there are you know there are other groups that are advocating the same thing. So, for us, is is to work uh, as much as we can in partnership with other groups. And we are reaching out to those groups now. I mean, we're all very much advocating the same thing. So for us, it seems, uh, you know, a power in numbers. We should be working together rather than all trying to, um, uh, you know, pursue our own campaign or pursue our own um, uh, approach to this. And I think there's a real opportunity for uh, us as a food company and I think we're probably maybe the only food company that's actually standing up against this issue. Um, you know, the broader f- food industry really wants to just hope this issue goes away so they can just keep advertising and doing what they're doing. But, you know, I think if there's a voice within the industry and even though we're not part of FMCG or the junk food industry, we're still part of the broader food industry and I think if we're standing up and saying, as a food company, this is wrong, it needs to change, um, you know, it kind of helps that message that health practitioners and consumer advocacy groups are also trying to get out and, and yeah. um, change uh, regulation on as well. So you're open to people approaching you if they've got a, um, a campaign absolutely. that yeah. they can partner absolutely. with you in this area? Yeah, okay. Yeah, absolutely. And we're quite happy to, you know, if, if they've got a specific campaign already that, you know, we back and support them and, and help them um, you know, create momentum around that so we can get some change happening. Yep, yep. yep. Um, I said there's so much I'd like to look at. I mean, I'd like to look at your packaging with TerraCycle and what you're doing with that, and I'd like to look at your Whole Kids Seeds Foundation and I'd like to do but we are running out of time. So I've got might to... Might have t- another interview. Yeah, we might. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> One of the things that made me smile, and I just wondered if you... Um, thinking about it, giving um, people three tips for if they were um, in a bit purpose-driven business, how to deal with it. Um, because when it, if you can think of three tips to, that you would give or, to them, I'll give you a moment to think about that. Because one of the interviews that you've done and I, on my research and I saw Monica was saying that how will we do this moments <laughs> And I, I just thought, oh, my God, we've all been there. How am I going to get through this? So have you got any tips for people of trying to get through things or how, what they should do as purpose-driven businesses? Yeah, look, I think um, I could probably have a list of 10 things. I think from our, my experience, one of the first things that's really important to do is to ensure you get it right on the inside. 
So ensure that your purpose is solid on the inside of a business so that things like your, we talked about recruitment earlier, um, so things like systems and policies and procedures and, and embed your purpose into all those things because it'll, it'll create a really strong culture and foundation for the business. And I think it's really important to build that internally almost before you go externally and communicate that. Um, you know, it's very easy to, to quickly go out with a message and say, well, I stand for this, and suddenly it's like, well, actually, oh, um, I've actually, how do I actually bring that to life? Um, you know, and I think it's really important to get it right on the inside before you go outside. Um, but also um, another important thing is, is to really focus on people. Um, and our type of business, it's, it, it is all about people, and I think every business is the same. Um, if you can get the right people on board, um, they're aligned with their values, they're aligned with your purpose, um, it, it will create such a difference to your business in terms of what your business can achieve um, because what you find is that um, everyone then starts to uh, be motivated by each other um, to do amazing things and that's what we find is that you find suddenly a lot of knowledge being shared, a lot of ideas being shared um, and, and if you have it right on the outside it fosters that culture anyway so people are more willing to share ideas and to sort of you know just look beyond their role um, and I think the third thing is I think once you get all those things right and you um, is to shout it <laughs> is to really then go outside and say uh, this is what I stand for this is you know this is my beliefs this is my values this is what the business is all about and to re and to be front and center about that don't be shy and think that oh you know um, a business shouldn't really talk about those things yes it God yeah absolutely it should if that's what your business is all about you should be confident and you should be very proud um, that to go out with your message around what you stand for as a business and I've noticed over the last 10 years of running this business that you know the whole movement around social enterprises around B corporations uh, conscious capitalism you know it, it's really happened in the last you know sort of five years really and more businesses that are part of that movement that are part of that new approach to business um, you know they're they're very confident in going out with that message and being you know putting their values and purpose front and center, but they've also got it right on the inside first. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Good. Well, they're three bits of good information and advice. Um, tell me, uh, just on a final note, um, what is on your bucket list? <laughs> uh, well, I have a big birthday coming up next week, and. Um, one of the things I'd always wanted to do since my 40th was to uh, go to Egypt and visit uh, a lot of these amazing ancient and archaeological sites that I'd grown up reading about as a kid. And um, I certainly want to do it before I get too old to be able to climb some of these monuments or climb down inside a pyramid. So uh, I think within the next 12 months, that's definitely on my bucket list to go. In fact, I might book a ticket right now. Good on you. <laughs> Nothing like being inspired and motivated to act. <laughs> well, thank you very much and thank you for your time and all your insights and for being so open. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Dana. And, it, was, it was wonderful talking to you. And I will take you up on an offer to come back a second time. 
<laughs> More than happy to, any time. Just not when I'm in Egypt, though. Oh, no, no. I'll give, give me warning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you, Dana. Well, I hope you enjoyed this show as much as I did. As someone would say, just pure gold, with so many insights and tips. So here are just three to start with. One, ensure you get it right on the inside of the business. Ensure your purpose is embedded into everything internally, and thus you'll create a strong culture. Two, really focus on people. It's all about people. If you get the right people on board, it'll create such difference. Three, shout out about what you stand for. Don't be shy, be confident and be proud. Be proud to say, these are my values and what my business is all about. If you'd like to hear more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. And if we're not there, let me know and I'll do my best to get us onto it. If James Meldrum from Whole Kids has said something that may help other entrepreneurs you know, please share the episode with them now. And if you'd like to help us grow, please leave a review. Don't forget to check out the links in the show notes. They say that no man or woman is an island. And so for my gratitudes. First, I'd like to say thank you to the generosity of Finch Jones for the music. Next, to Tim and the team that helps me put this together. To James Meldrum for sharing some of the whole kid's story. And to Cultivate Biz for their support. And finally, to you for listening, asking the questions and reviewing the show. Thank you. Till the next episode, thanks to all the awesome business owners out there who also give a damn.